First guest ever. We're up on episode. This is episode 272. First time I've ever had a guest who I've worked for. <laughs> and it'll never happen again. Well, maybe you'll come back, but I've, I've run yeah, out. I, I was going to say that sounded a little ominous. I've run out of former employers, I believe, who, who I can. There are, it's not a long list anyway. Uh, but anyway, I thought what better time. BB Edit 13 came out recently. I, I actually don't have the date in front of me, but I've always liked the idea of having, I, I need to do it more often is have some of my d developers come out and, and, you know, movie stars come out with a movie. What do they do? They go on shows, talk about it. Why don't developers do it when there's a major release? And, and you know, that's a, that's a sort of an old school big co thing to do uh, from back in the day is whenever there was a major release, the, the company would, would go out on tour. They'd do a press tour. They'd go around everywhere and meet with everybody, and and that's how it used to work. Your BB Edit's career, uh, well, BB Edit doesn't have a career, but your career leading, co-founding Bare Bones with your longtime partner Patrick. How's Patrick doing, by the way? He's he's great. He's the same as he ever was, <laughs> unchanged. Thirteen's <laughs> uh, a big number. You've always been relatively conservative i would say in the grand scheme of version numbers that if it's a dot o it's it's pretty significant 13 but how long how old is bb edit now so uh the first commercial v version of bb edit was 2.5 and that shipped back in may of 1993 you and i used to always talk about it you've always said that one of the it's it's sort of like people who say that they read the uh don larson's perfect game Yankee Stadium, you know, there's Yankee Stadium seated 56,000 people. There's <laughs> 500,000 people in the New York area who were there at the game. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people misremember that they had BB at at 1.0. Yeah, it's a funny thing how how memory works. Of course, over enough time, you you sort of fuzz out the details and, and, and that's how it goes. It happens to all of us. There, there was a BB at 1.0 at one point, but it never left the building in general release. But, you know, 1.0 is a shorthand for since the very beginning. That's, that's something we hear a lot of. And so when somebody says 1.0, we're like, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Great right. to hear from you. And, and, and yeah, and there might be a kernel of truth to it where they might distinctly remember reading a review in Macworld or MacUser or one of the magazines at the time that would say something to the effect of BBN at 2.0 is 2.5 is the first commercial release of Barebone Software's award-winning text editor, blah, blah, blah. And then they just file that away in their head as first release. Yep. Um. Still going strong. I, I I looked back. My friend Daniel Bogan runs a site called Uses This. And, I uh, remember Daniel. Well, and he's still going strong. You know, he. I didn't realize how how diligent he is with Uses This. There's 1,040 interviews on Daniel's Uses This site, and basically he just talks to creative people of all slants. Maybe someone like me, like a blogger type person, a developer individual uh, creative artists of various sorts and talks to them about what tools they use to do their work. Uh, I was on, I was a, a interviewee uh, over 10 years ago <laughs> and I looked back <laughs> on it this last week because my friend Andy Bayo of uh, waxy.org fame was asked to be on back then too in like 2009 and had put it off <laughs> until like last week. So it was like, <laughs> 
Uh, so I read his, and I thought, well, I should go back and reread mine. And boy, either I'm either I'm the luckiest sob on the planet, or I've got really good taste in software because uh, the the list of my most used and the ones I had most affection for software are still going strong. And and at the top of the list was BB Edit. Yojimbo still on the list. Uh, P Calc. Uh, Omni Outliner. There's an awful lot. Of, there's an awful lot of apps from 2009 that are not around anymore. But the funny thing is, if I went back to 1999, BB Edit still would have been at the top of the list. Yeah, and and I'm going to go with um, good taste on that one because um, what we found is that you you don't stick around for very long without having some amount of perseverance, some degree of of willingness to just sort of dig in and do what needs to be done. And for us too, it's, you know, we're, we're, we're committed. Yeah. Well, we should be, but. <laughs> uh, also, I, I'd be, I'd be, uh, I'd be neglect if I don't mention another one from the top of my list is uh, Acorn from uh, Flying Meat Software and our good oh, friend Gus Acorn. Mueller and, and his wife at So Do I. Uh, but it's funny because I look at that list and I think, well, you know, 10 years ago, and I think BB Edit and PCalc and Omni Outliner, those are apps that have been along, around a long time. I still think of Acorn as like a, a newish app. <laughs> I think it was at the time. I think it was relatively a very low version number in 2009. Uh, but it's, you know, been a solid 10 years. And it's sort of that same formula of, of, for lack of a better word, uh, craftsmanship. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. And, and I, I think you've really nailed it with that one is, um, there, there is a craft to this, right. And you don't to go back on what I said a minute ago and build on it. You, you don't endure without a dedication to that. So, I mean, again, I don't want to spend the whole show reminiscing about the good old days, quote unquote, except I kind of do want to talk about the good old days. <laughs> but one of the things that I found most I find most inspiring about the BB edit story is it not that there haven't been ups and downs along with the fairing of Apple itself. For sure. I mean, talking about an app that first came out in 1993, there was some rough years. Oh, yes, there were. As a Mac developer. uh, But in hindsight, there's never really been a time in that period when BB Edit wasn't completely relevant to the needs of somebody who needs a professional strength text editor for the Mac platform that did things the Mac way that supported the Mac technologies in the OS that, that would be applicable to a text editor with professionals. There was ne- there's never been a period where BB edit really hasn't been relevant to that. Like it's, for lack of a better word, I would say you've never taken your eye off the ball on, on where that should be. Um, y- yeah. And I, I think a central reason for that is that, um, Underneath it all, there has always been text, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's it, true. It, it it doesn't matter. Uh, it almost doesn't matter what you do for a living. Underneath it, there is text. Um, 
at the very beginning when we when we started doing this, I was writing Mac software and of course text, right? Source code. Um, and then the World Wide Web started to grow and it was HTML and it was text. And Web 2.0, remember that? Yeah. Uh, came along and it was uh, JavaScript and CSS and and even as we move forward into into newer stuff, um, it's still all text underneath. And and that's kind of what the plumbing of the world is built on as, as far as our industry is concerned, as far as the web is concerned. It is in some ways – and Brent Simmons and I have talked about this a bit. And I feel I feel like I have a long, daring fireball rant in, on this that I've been sitting on literally could be 10 years. But um, basically how plain text won the war. And – it's hard to remember, like when BB at first appeared in 1993, 94, 95, I, I think you had to do an awful lot of explaining on a regular basis to customers that, no, you, you can't just hit command I to make the text italic. <laughs> Indeed. No, there is. You can change the font, but you'd be changing the font for everything because it's plain text. And, and I think that that was very hard. It, it seems ridiculous. Today's world where plain text is so prevalent in so many ways, but on the Macintosh really from the get go with the software that really took off in the eighties, you know, your Mac writes, the original, the early versions of Microsoft word. Um, I was going to call it uh, text edit, but of course at the time it was teach text, which again, <laughs> in, in hindsight, what a strange name. I'm, I know that I, I used to know the backstory on how it became teach text, but what a weird, you know, but it, what we now know is, well, the equivalent role of text edit, the default text editor for the platform was an app called Teach Text, but it defaulted to styled text. And so you could change the font, you could make it bold, you could make it italic. And that sort of was sort of the baseline that, that Mac users formed for how text should work. And, and not having it, I think, was it was hard to explain. Uh, it, it was for for a less technical user, and and so the the story that we always used to tell, and, and it's an interesting point you make because we have to answer the question very seldom these days. Um, but but the story we always used to tell is there are two ways to look at text. There's um, text as the content of a finished document, something you'd produce with Word or PageMaker, remember that, uh, or InDesign, yep. or uh, any Quirk modern, yeah, right. the, 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 right. So the document is itself the finished work. And then there's text, which is data and it's fed into another program. And that might be a compiler. It might be a web browser or a web server or an interpreter or God help us a markdown to HTML renderer. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so what we built BB Edit to do as, as part of the story, what we built BB Edit to do uh, was to function to handle the second class of text. And it, you know, it was, it, it there was a, a niche to be filled there. That, that role really didn't, it, it I, I know that there were other plain text editors of that era, but there was none that really, it, seemed like it was the king of the hill to supplant. I mean, for the most part, I think in the early days, BB Edit was competing against the built-in text editors in 
think C and, and think Pascal. Uh, with the term competing being used loosely, um, right. in, in those specific cases, um, uh, think C and think Pascal had their own built in editors, but they were also, uh, purpose built for working within those IDEs. Right. And, um, that, that was sort of BB at its earliest market opportunity was, uh, okay, so we need a text. I kept hearing, we need a text editor that isn't tied to an IDE, um, the original consulaire Mac editor uh, was sort of come and gone. Um, MPW was from Apple, and it was part of a tool chain that cost around a thousand dollars or more. Yep. Um, and was not really. It was a weird beast. I mean, we 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 can't go into it a long thing on mpw but mpw right. didn't act like i mean that was part of the commercial appeal well it was, mpw was a commercial product too which is crazy when you think about it that it was a thousand dollars but part of what the the think product stepped in and did is we could do this in a very macintosh way whereas mpw was this weird sort of moon man mismatch of unix command line isms but not really unix unix just sort of unix inspired in a mac yeah. app yeah, and and at the same time, th there were some freeware third-party editors. There were a couple of commercial products or a couple of shareware things, and I, I think one of the first things that I I remember from that era was looking at those and thinking, yeah, I, I kind of see what they're doing, but in sort of true programmer-ish fashion, I looked at it and said, well, that's not the way I want to do it. And I have the ability to do it the way I want to do it. So I'm going to do it. <laughs> I, I think, and the older I get, the more I believe it, the more, uh, you know, if you want me to come in and give a pep, top, pep talk to, uh, to some youngins, uh, I think some of the best advice you can have in life is that uh, if you ever look at an opportunity like that, whether you want to get into programming, whether you want to get into writing, whether you want to be an actor or stand up comedian, whatever it is, if you look at what people are doing and you think I could do that, you probably can. Like that's, that's really, I, I, I know it's sounds trite, but really that's half of, half of life and half of success in life is just deciding, looking at something and saying, I could do that. That nobody knows who I am. I've never done it before. But I think if I stepped in here, I could do this. Yeah, and, and it's funny you mention that because my wife and I have been watching this delightful little short-run reality show called Making It. Hmm. And it's it's uh, it was on, uh, I, I think it was NBC, um, um, Amy Poehler and uh, what the – I can't remember his name right now. It'll oh, come to me. I, you know what I was on? Nick, I was... Nick Offerman, that's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just They're saw that on the airplane the other day. It was uh, I was uh, went on a trip with my dad over the weekend for his birthday, and uh, I didn't put the headphones on. But I I know the show. I didn't watch the show because I didn't want to use their goofy headphones. But uh, it was on the on the airplane. Yeah, and it, it's a lot of fun. The vibe in it is really positive. It's not sort of that cutthroat reality show. Right. But but one of the things they sort of keep landing on as they're talking is. We want people to feel like to look at this and say, "Well, yeah, I can do that." Yeah, and, exactly. And, and 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 so and so that's sort of the flip side of it, right? Is you know I completely agree with you. If you if you look at something, and you think, yeah, I could do that. Go ahead and do it. Uh, just a touch again. I, I don't want to get too far away from it. To go back and sure. uh, talk about the role that styled text played, and 
we could talk more about AppleScript in a bit and the, the weird, bizarre <laughs> unkillability of AppleScript and what a weird vestige of the 90s it really is. But one of the things that in hindsight, when you look at it now compared to every other scripting language in use that I'm aware of, is that its underlying backing store is not plain text. I mean, you do type text. And so if you could start from beginning to end and write an entire Apple script right there in the script editor, you could do it. But then the second you hit enter, it compiles and gets stored in this weird styled text format that isn't really text underneath anyway, because it gets translated to Apple events behind the scenes and it, it Nobody would ever make a scripting language that worked like that today. But in the 90s, I think that seemed like a normal idea because it was it, it, somehow it felt like that's where the world had gone is, is we shouldn't be writing plain text. We should be we should be doing something fancier, for lack of a better word. Yeah. And, it, and it's and it's funny, some of the parallels there, because um, my my first job as a soft professional software engineer uh, in the Mac industry was working on Think Pascal. And one of the uh, intrinsic characteristics of it was that you could enter text into its editor, but um, oh, Audacity just bound up on me. I hope hope there's no gap there. <laughs> uh, we'll edit it. Out. Uh, uh, you 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 can uh, you could enter. You were typing into the editor, but. Uh, every once in a while, if or if you press the enter key, it would um, take your text, it would tokenize it. And so the internal representation of your text was this sort of bizarre tokenized format. And right. Apple scripts, Apple's script editor and all of the Apple script editors, including the excellent script debugger, uh, do that. And it's just intrinsic to the way Apple Script is. And sure, there are some advantages. It's very compact. And once upon a time, that mattered. Uh, but it is very strange. It, there's a great quote by uh, Brian Kernigan. I'm trying to get it here so I don't screw it up. Here we go. Everyone knows this is, you know, co-inventor of the C programming language you know, one of the one of the great programmers in computer science history. Everyone knows that debugging is twice as hard as writing a program in the first place. So if you're ever as clever as you can be when you write it, how will you ever debug it? <laughs> and I anybody who's ever written any kind of program of any complexity whatsoever knows exactly what he's talking about. But I feel like that lesson didn't get learned and maybe it'll never get fully learned. Everybody's there's always <laughs> always youngins ready to make not not learn from the mistakes of their <laughs> elders but i kind of feel like the whole industry went too far in that direction with like just things like file formats and not were and, and network protocols that weren't human readable either like if it's a network protocol protocol just right over the wire or if it's a file format if you could just open it in a text editor and actually see the file format um, it, it, and I feel like those formats got, were, were, were sort of fell into that trap that he's talking about, where if you make the file format as clever as you possibly can, how are you ever going to debug it when there's a problem, when there's a bug involving writing to the file format, if you can't just eyeball it? Well, why would you ever need to debug it if you got it right the first time? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And I, I, I think there's a few factors at work there, right? Um, 
one one of them is is definitely what a friend of mine used to call excessive cleverness. Mm. Um, a, a, another factor is um, that sometimes the technology is a product of the time in which it's invented. Um, yep. Back when Brian Kernahan was was inventing C um, and programming on Unix, there were a lot of constraints. And uh, these days, there are many fewer. So it's easy to think about making things more computationally complicated or, or making them take up more space, and w- which is a weird thing to think about because text is not all that large. Right. In and not all that complicated things. in the yeah. grand scheme of things. Um, so, yeah. I kind of feel, speaking of text being large, that leads me to XML. Uh, <laughs> I kind of feel like that's one of those products of its time. So Mac OS 10 and, and to some extension, I, I think iOS too, just in a way that it inherited from Mac OS uh, was really a product in in a lot of ways. Some of the decisions they made at a very low level were a product of the very late 90s. And one of those was the ascendance of Java. And so they they wasted, a, in hindsight, wasted an awful lot of time uh, creating Java versions of the Cocoa frameworks because it seemed like this is what you had to do to be relevant. Java was so just, it was just like, madness you know the Mm -hmm. whole industry had been consumed by it and then xml was the other one where all the config files in in mac os 10 for some definition of all that is like 99 percent are xml files under the hood or like gzipped xml files you know to understand what these property lists are like whenever you had to hack into your preferences or something like that it's an xml file um and XML has really fallen out of favor in in the real world. I mean, nobody really, nobody that I know of does new stuff with XML. It's all if it's if it's there and it's legacy, it's there. But everybody has switched to primarily JSON, the JavaScript object notation. And the one of the big differences between JSON and XML, even if you use it to represent the same thing, is there's an awful lot less visual noise in JSON. It's it's back to hey, you could just like read this. And understand. Oh, I see what's going on here. I see the format. Oh, that's an array. There you go. Here's 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 all the key values. Here's the values. Yeah, J- J- JSON is is super um, super well suited for for key value transmission. Um, and I I think there's still a place in the world for XML, but but. But for but for that sort of key value storage these days, there are definitely better things, and I think JSON is yeah. is pretty much the way to go for that these days. Right. But when the app, you know, to bring it back to BB Edit, when the app's underlying thing is this app is meant for reading plain text files of any format. Yeah. Uh, when new things pop up, there's BB Edit ready to go. Yep. All right. Let me take a break here. Thank our first sponsor of the show. It is our good friends at Eero. E-E-R-O. Eero is Wi-Fi done right. You go to the website. You figure out how big your house is. They've got a handy configuration tool. One rule of thumb might be one per floor. If if your home layout is really, really sprawling across one floor or you've got really thick walls from one side of the house to the other, maybe two on one floor, but they'll help you out. You get a couple of these units. 
You plug one of them into your cable modem. The other ones, you just hook them up in the app. Couldn't be easier. iPhone app right there. Very nice. By the way, very nice new version of the app that fully supports dark mode and a couple of other things. Really like the new version of the Eero app. Um, and, you know, if you've got like the situation where your basement, say, or your garage is a black hole before Eero, like that's that was a problem for me at my old house is the basement was a black hole for Wi-Fi because the walls were too thick. And then you get in your car and you want to just download a podcast because you, before you go off and now you can't get it because you don't have any signal. Yeah. Eero is designed to get rid of that. You do not have to be a system administrator. Couldn't be further from the truth. But you get all sorts of nice stuff in the app. Tells you all the devices in your house, which ones they're connected to. And it just fills your whole home with fast, reliable Wi-Fi. Eliminating poor coverage. Dead spots. Buffering. Also, really, really easy to do. It updates the software automatically. So, like, if over this holiday season... You're visiting family, maybe your folks or something like that, and they've got a really crappy Wi-Fi situation at home. Get them a couple Eero base stations. You'll set it up before you even have dinner. Couldn't be easier. Really is a nice thing maybe for the less technically adept members of your family who don't even know that just using the Wi-Fi that comes with their cable modem is kind of a cruddy solution. Uh, so anyway, I love it. You can hear me. You're hearing me talk right now. I'm not connected to Ethernet right now. Talking to Rich Siegel over Wi-Fi. Get your Wi-Fi fixed as soon as tomorrow. If you go to eero.com slash the talk show and enter that code, the talk show, all one word at checkout, you get free overnight shipping with your order. That's eero.com slash talk show. Use that code, the talk show to get your Eero delivered with free overnight shipping. Plenty of time for the holidays. Take them home. Fix your folks Wi-Fi. But you got to use that URL, eero.com slash the talk show. Uh, uh, so let's talk, let's fa fast forward. Let's talk BB at 13. Uh, let's do it. Dark mode. And now you've had dark mode support, I think since, uh, Mac OS when it went, when the last version of Mac OS had it first. That's one of those weird things that came to the Mac before it came to, uh, to iOS. Uh, and BB edit sort of backed its way into dark mode support where even before the OS officially had this feature called dark mode, where you just toggle a switch in system preferences, BB edit as a text editor has had uh, complete control over the coloring of, of your text. So if you wanted to, as a lot of programmers seem to want to do, and I've long done, if you want to program with a dark background and light text, BB Edit has supported that for a very long time. And I think it was sort of, that's sort of where BB Edit's dark mode support kind of backed in. Yeah, that's right. And and so what, what sort of happened there, and I kind of say sort of because, well, that's how it was. It just sort of happened, um, was that macOS... Uh, I think it was 10.13, had sort of a very, very embryonic version of of the appearance support that first appeared uh, in 10.14. Right. Because 10.14 was the first OS that had a user-visible dark mode. But it turned out that in 10.13, it was possible to set a dark appearance for your Windows and UI Chrome. And... And so once I figured that out, I started tinkering and realized that if you were using a dark background color scheme, uh, 
then what I could do was set the surrounding window to be dark as well and sort of make it a, uh, make it a little bit less jarring to use. Right. And th that persisted for a while. And I sort of kept that hack in place for longer than I wanted to because we had to keep supporting 10, 13, and older OSs for a while. When BB Edit 13 shipped, I looked and I said, okay, let's impose some sanity here. Uh, we've got Catalina coming up, which has automatic switching. And so what I did was I kind of turned the model on its head. So instead of yanking the application appearance around to match the color scheme, I split it apart and I said, okay, you can have one appearance for light mode and one appearance for dark mode, one color scheme for light mode, one color scheme for dark mode. So uh, then whenever you switch, it just follows. I will tell you, and this is something, I mean, I've used, I don't want to go on too, too far of a tangent with this, but uh, I've used BB edit in a, in a roughly dark mode fashion for a long time. And primarily for me, I've always thought as an app that it's always open and I'm often using all day, every day to some degree. Usually if I have a longer article on Daring Fireball, I'm doing it in BB Edit. I've always found that it, it with most of the Chrome in the OS being the traditional white backgrounds, light gray backgrounds, having that one dark window or a couple of dark windows that pop out behind other windows, it's just helpful in that uh, – sort of a Fitz's law sort of way where there's this nice big visual rectangle. And I know that if I click the mouse anywhere on it, BB edits back in the forward, back in the forefront. If I happen to have my fingers on the trackpad or the mouse at the moment, right? Like if you get yep. in the flow and if your hands are on the keyboard, you want to switch to the other app with the keyboard, usually command tab or something like that. And if your hands are on the mouse, you want to, you want to keep it on the mouse. You just don't want to switch context like that. And dark mode's always, always been, I've always enjoyed BB edit like that. Um, but the other thing that it sounds like a terrible pun that's been eye opening to me recently is I've been going through some visual issues and including uh, cataracts in both eyes. And it, it, it's truly an accessibility issue. And there were moments months ago or not too far ago where with different types of cataracts in both my left and right eye, I literally found myself unable to read black text on a white background. It just looked like gray text that was just washed out. And dark mode was a revelation. And because I'd switch, and I'm not really, like on iOS, I'm not really a fan of it aesthetically, but I'd switch my phone to dark mode and I could just, I, I could read. I didn't have to bump the text size up to, I, I, I'd like run it like one click over the default. But that was fine as long as it was dark mode. It was something to do with the way that the cataract reflects, reflects light that having a bright white background just blurred the text out hopelessly. And so now all of a sudden light bulb goes off in my head and I realize, well, that's why the Mac OS and iOS have had that feature for years and years in the accessibility preferences to completely reverse the colors of the screen, which yep. was sort of like... Uh, poor man's dark mode but it was aesthetically displeasing because some colors you know white goes to black well that's fine but you know blue going to orange and and 
you know, different colors would reverse. And then they've added, you know, and they've kept at it. And it's, it's one of those ways where I've always been an advocate for accessibility. And I think Apple has done such a commendable job. And they've added some nice features in recent years where they try to be smart about what they reverse and what they don't. So if you're reading a news article in the New York Times, they'll reverse the color. If you have that mode on, go from black to white, white to black, but they won't do the photographs because, you know, a photograph that's completely reversed looks like an image negative. Um, but having proper dark mode that that is aesthetically pleasing and that the designer and developers of the app have looked at and chosen colors and button colors and text colors to have everything look right, when I needed it for accessibility, I... I it honestly was like, I, I just felt like the luckiest SOB on the planet. Cause if it had happened 10 years ago, maybe I would have been out of luck. Yeah, it, it, it's all true. I, I agree with all of it. And in that, uh, in, in a practical sense, f dark mode really is an accessibility boost. Um, it, for most people, you look at it and, and Either you you need it because you work in an open plan office with horrible fluorescent lights, so everybody right. turns the lights off and it's dark. Right, and then and then a conventional light mode appearance just burns your eyes out. Right, uh, but yeah, it's it's a very real issue, uh, and and so um, for us, yeah, it's it was just nice to be able to kind of make it all blend together smoothly, and and the designer who did the the updated color schemes for BB at, I think it was, I think it was BB at 11 where we introduced the new color scheme model. Um, just did a terrific job. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, you know, and you can go everything from, you know, like a daring fireball scheme where it's sort of dark with light text or very dark, like black with white text and, and, and stuff like that. Um, here's a BB edit story. I have this in my show notes. I got to tell. <laughs> Just recently, right when I decided to have you on, uh, I was writing my MacBook Pro, the 16-inch MacBook Pro review. So that's recently. It was about, what, three weeks ago? Somewhere, somewhere around there. Uh, tight turnaround. You know, we got these, the, those of us who got the review units... Uh, <laughs> I think we had like, like 14 hours before the the embargo dropped. So it's not really, you know, quote unquote review. You can't, nobody's pretending that that's a, a full fledged review, but you can give first impressions and I'm not in a race for clicks or hits. And so I'm not hell bent on hitting the embargo, but I do know that people wanted to pre-order them and, you know, and that was, so that was my goal writing the, the thing is okay for the readers who are thinking about jumping on this right away, because they've been waiting for a, a, an updated keyboard design. And maybe they, you know, they've heard about this bigger 16-inch screen, and so they've been waiting for it. What do they want to know? That's my attitude. So I'm writing it, and the first thing I did was maybe we had two days, but the first time I tried to set it up, I I wanted to use uh, not Time Machine. What's the thing called? Migration Assistant to get oh boy to get set up well i'll tell you what now so i'm i've been negative on i i've skipped migration assistant for years and years and years and a couple of years ago on my show i i tried it on a lark 
not with a machine that I bought for myself, but with a review unit from Apple. And I thought, well, what the hell? It's not even my machine. I'll use Migration Assistant. It was amazing. And it moved over stuff that I, I couldn't believe it moved over, like uh, CPAN mo modules for Perl that I installed at the command line, you know, using sudo. Uh, stuff that was far outside my my user's home directory. Uh, and it all just moved over. It, it really has been. And I got a couple of, I got some feedback from some people that there's, there's been a, a very small but dedicated team within Apple that really has put an awful lot of work into migration assistant without much recognition outside. And I think there's a lot of old timers like me who back in the day tried either when it was called migration assistant or whatever the old name was, tried it, look at the results, wipe the hard drive, start over from scratch and start, you know, I, I used to maintain this big, long checklist of everything to install, what to do when I get a new machine. I use migration assistant now. Um, but it was slow. And, and the, the reason it was slow and it's, you know, again, I should have known better, but basically if you're using USB three, it's pretty slow, even if it's like from an SSD. And so instead of going machine to machine, I went from an SSD super duper clone to this machine and it was taking mm -hmm. forever and the progress bar was i know that's it's like a long running gag that progress bars are some of the hardest to write code and don't get a lot of love but it was like it only updated like twice it was like a seven hour migration and it like there were like three times where it updated so it was like stuck at seven hours for like two hours and i thought yep. maybe it was stuck lies damn lies and progress bars exactly <laughs> Well, anyway, long story short, I I let it go overnight. It's it's uh, it, the seven hours thing must have been right. It just wasn't updating. There's all my stuff. I've got a working home directory. I've got all of the apps that I want to use. I I type command space and launch bar opens, and I type bb and bb edit launches, and it's got all my stuff. It looks like my bb edit. You know the preferences. I guess made it across. Um. And there I go. I'm off to the races and I'm writing my review. And it got late in the night. You know, I think it was like an 8 a.m. Eastern time deadline. It's like four in the morning. I'm proofreading. I'm too old to be proofreading at four in the morning. It's I'm tired. <laughs> and I, it's, I don't know what I was thinking. And I thought, well, I, I should at least unplug this SSD. And I unplugged the SSD and BB Edit disappeared because it was running off the SSD. I hadn't installed BB Edit on the internal drive. When I typed command space, launch bar, I'd found it in the applications folder on the SSD that was a super duper clone of the other article. And I hear the whole article was just about done. I'm in a proofreading stage and it's four in the morning and the whole goddamn and, thing disappeared. And you're screaming intern either either internally or out or outwardly. I would call it more of a flop sweat. <laughs> I would say it was a flop sweat, but I think to myself now I haven't I haven't thought that I might have lost data in BB Edit in years. I haven't even. I, I guess I've had some crashes, but I can't remember how you know like running beta versions, of course. <laughs> but I haven't had a moment like that in BB Edit in a very long time. And I thought, well, I have faith in BB Edit, and uh, but I honestly couldn't remember. I couldn't remember if I had hit Command S, and I probably had. Because, uh, you know, if you're of a certain age, you just hit Command S while you're idly thinking, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I launched BB Edit again. Actually, I copied it over from the SSD. I was like, oh, I better put it in app local applications. I, t I launched BB Edit, and boom, there's my article back up. And I it 
insertion point blinking on the sentence that I was struggling over how to fix. Didn't lose a word. Oh, beautiful thing. That that auto save, auto recovery stuff really, it, you know, it goes back to the days when laptops in particular tended to unexpectedly go to sleep. Yeah. And not wake up. <laughs> Especially if you were running Mac OS ten early versions. <laughs> oh I... it, it was it was a thing, remember? Yeah. And and uh and it goes back to the days before the <laughs> OS itself had any sort of of uh restoration mechanics built in and and, right. and we just said, you know, we want people to not have to worry if something crashes. We have to, we want people to to just start up and pick up where they le- wherever they left off. Well, I didn't have Time Machine set up on this machine because it was something I had just set up, and the only external drive I had set up was the Super Duper clone from the other machine, which I don't even know why I, why I was running. I don't even know. That doesn't seem like me. You know, it doesn't. When I'm on a laptop, it doesn't seem right to just keep keep an SSD connected if you're not actively using it, like to do the Super Duper backup or to do the the restore or if you uh-huh. happen to be using it just because you've run out of internal storage and you have a lo- large you know uh, lightroom project or or video project or something like that that you need an external drive for but i i was under the impression i didn't need it i was i thought i don't know why i didn't eject it i don't know what i was thinking but for some reason impulsively at four in the morning i unplugged the drive didn't lose didn't please, lose please a eject word. the volume backup before unplugging it did not lose a word and Boy, I wish it made me wish not for the first time in my life that BB Edit was a physical object that I could just give a pat on the head to. <laughs> I'd say thank you. Um, well, you know, may, maybe there's an uh, a product idea in there because we we've got a merchandise store now, and when you said physical object, I instantly flashed flashed to the weighted companion cube from Portal. <laughs> Maybe there needs to be a weighted BB Edit cube uh, I, or BB Edit plush. It's such a great feature. It really is, and it's been there for a while, and I just had this thought, I think BB Edit will have my back. <laughs> and it did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was something back in the day. I know my friend Michael Lopp has said this to me, too, that it's like he he he, uh, he of Rands and Repose, Rands.com, fame mm-hmm. but he he likes to he 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 likes to identify people of his generation or older by whether they have the idle habit of command s when they like without even thinking while they're while they're like pausing between sentences or lines of code or or something like that yeah it's it's what jim Correa used to call the save twitch yes the save twitch right it's just something to do sometimes i'll just sit there and hit command s a couple times you know just save mm-hmm. save yeah Save. save early, save often. Yeah. <laughs> when you think about it, and it's like I said, like, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia in this episode talking about the old days of BB Edit, but, and BB Edit was always good at that. BB Edit was always a stable application. And, but, you know, like you said, something, you know, it's certainly beyond the purview of an app to be able to say whether or not the power book is going to successfully wake, <laughs> wake from sleep. <laughs> And it was, yep. and and we used to we we'd console ourselves as Mac users with well at least we're not on Windows where it you know really does seem like you're at you know at Russian roulette type odds as to whether the laptop's going to wake up when you when you open the lid. 
Yeah, but you know, I, I like to think that if if in a different timeline we were doing Windows software, we'd do it the same way. <laughs> uh, all right. I was talking about uh, AppleScript before, and I want to get back to that because I feel like BBEdit has always has had good support for AppleScript from about as early on as you could have expected it to. You know, I think I'm dating myself here, but I'm pretty sure AppleScript was system 7.1 or maybe it was 7.5, but I think it was 7.1. Um, it's always been the the most supported automation tool at the system level. Um, and things that you could argue are maybe equivalent to AppleScript in their support, like, and I would say Automator would be the more modern equivalent. But again, it, you got to put, quotes around modern for automator at this point but that was largely in in a lot of ways was largely built on top of apple script there's a lot of a lot of the stuff that you can do in automator is based you know for apps to support it it's still based on the same underlying apple event stuff yep um, and apple and apple events on mac os 10 uh are implemented using mock ipc <laughs> <laughs> which so go go figure that which dates back to 1988 i think or 89 so go figure that one out it does seem to be and and i always i i fear for it i think everybody who cares about it fears for the future of apple script it doesn't seem like the type of technology that apple really cares about there's been a vague sound. I mean, now we're we're 17 to 20 years, depending on where you want to count the origins of Mac OS X. You know, as a shipping product, it's, I guess, around 17 years. Uh, certainly as something that's been in development, it's more like 22, 23 years. That's a long time. It never felt like the next side really had all that much uh, <laughs> interest in AppleScript. Uh, you know, and... Basically, the story, you know, to oversimplify it was that there are so there were so many professional Mac users in production environments who had workflows that depended on it, that if Apple had any thought at the beginning of axing it in that great, you know, and it was the right thing to do to go through project by project and do hard things like kill the Newton, for example. That it the company needed to focus and certain things. I mean, it in a sense that's tragic because the Newton was kind of beautiful in certain ways. Uh, there are other technologies that I don't know that anybody really <laughs> had much affection for, and it, I, I don't. There wasn't wasn't weren't many tears shed for getting rid of Open Dock. I don't think. Just, <laughs> uh, Sorry, I I can't help but laugh. Right, I, I know there was that famous video of a guy who was an open doc developer giving jo Jobs the business at a WWDC in like '97, and Jobs had this wonderful answer to to the gentleman. Uh, I think that might have been the one guy who really really was upset that Apple killed Open Doc. Apple Script is sort of this thing that that won't die because people need it, but doesn't really move forward because Apple doesn't care about it enough. It occupies a very strange place in the mac power users tool belt in my opinion i i agree with that and to to throw another wrinkle into it i think the security folks at mm. apple hate it mm -hmm. because 
because to them, I believe, because nobody has ever said as much to me, but it, it seems very clear, um, they consider AppleScript a gigantic security hole. Right. Underneath it, they consider Apple Events a gigantic security hole. They consider cross-application IPC to be a gigantic security hole. And um, they, I think, would be delighted if the whole thing just went away. Yeah, I get that impression, uh, too. And they're good people. And if that's their job is to be the security people, it, yep. it is, you know, like I, I, I say this with no, no animosity towards them, mm-hmm. even though I hope that they continue to get overruled because I get it <laughs> that that's their job, right? Your job as the security person is to is to raise those things, right? Like the, Yeah, the, the, oh, absolutely. You know, the Secret Service's job isn't to make sure that uh, – you know, the sight lines for the cameras from CNN are at an optimal angle, right? The security, yep. you know what I mean? That's not their mm-hmm. job, you know? And if if their answer to CNN is no, your your cameras are going down here in this pit and that's it, you know, it's it's for security reasons, you know, it's, but I do, yeah. I do get that impression that IPC as a whole, that you can go down the stack and that the whole thing is sort of it, it viewed very uh, skeptically. That yeah, it's it's the job of the security folks to envision the worst case scenario. Uh, but as as long as I can remember, and I I can I can remember a long time at this point. Um, here's another flashback for you: working on Mailsmith <laughs> and PGP support in the late '90s. Hmm. And um, if there has always been an intrinsic, I believe, an intrinsic conflict between security and usability, user experience. Yeah. And there has to be a balance there. Yeah. And and so, uh, it, and it's a very, very difficult line to walk. I do not envy uh, the people who have to make decisions in either the security group or the user experience group, because you just know that if you tighten one screw, uh, you're going to hurt a lot of people. Yeah. And it's, uh, I, I feel like it's a recurring theme in my writing is that I feel I've always felt like I, I'm, I have a good sense of fairness towards viewing trade-offs and appreciating the other side of an argument. Whereas I feel like an awful lot of people who care passionately about something really latch on to their side of, of the trade-off argument. And I just wrote about this today. I, I linked to iFixit's teardown of the new Mac Pro and they gave it a nine out of 10 for repairability. By all mm-hmm. accounts, it, it is every bit as modular as, as Apple promised. Uh, and you know, there's a bit of tongue in cheek from the iFixit guys, and I get it, and it's funny. But like, they really, you know, they were making hay over the fact that you can literally put in your own RAM using nothing but a pair of opposable thumbs. You don't even, <laughs> yeah. you don't even need a screwdriver to get to where the RAM is. Isn't that great? Uh, and it really is great. And they're one. They gave it a nine out of ten, and they didn't say why they didn't give it ten out of ten. But the only real knock they had against the whole system is that the system's SSD drive isn't user swappable because it's on the same chipset as the whole T2 system, um, which is the, the little iOS running on a system on a chip that for the Mac pro, there is no touch bar and there is no touch ID, but it's the same system that handles that there is a secure enclave. And, you know, they have a wonderfully human readable white paper on it 
that I, I think I linked to today. And you can read about it. And it really is an interesting system. And it really is a very interesting approach to security and being able to validate the boot, the system booting up. And of all the nefarious ways that uh, a bad actor could screw with your computer to get something, if they can get something in there early on in the boot process, then the whole thing's over. And so being able to verify that is a great, great thing. But it really is a huge trade-off in the usability of the system as a modular thing where, let's say, you you spend $12,000 on this configuration now and two years from now, the price of 8 gigabyte or 8 terabyte SSDs drops significantly that you can't just say, well, I'll get one of those 8 terabyte system SSDs and swap it in. That you can't do that. It is a huge that, – that's usability for the type of people who buy Mac Pros. It's a direct trade-off. Yep, and I think that's what costs them the one point with iFixit. Yeah. Was that that one issue alone. There's also – and to me, we've never really gotten clarity on this, on the scripting – you know, the, the other scripting story on Mac OS X. Mac OS X has always been this Unix layer. And when mm-hmm. Mac OS X – when Mac OS X was new – when it was even before it came out, there was like a whole page on apple.com slash Mac OS 10 that had this big, you know, uh, in the style of the day, a very skeuomorphic three dimensional fakes, three dimensional steel plate with pristine screws that said yeah. Unix. This is secure. Yeah, it's secure. <laughs> it is robust. And at the time in 2002, secure meant things like a protected memory system so that when an app, you know, if one app went down, it had no chance of bringing down, you know, the whole Windows server or whatever the equivalent was on, on the old Mac OS, you know, where an app could scribble over the wrong part of memory mm-hmm. and boom, your whole, whole machine's wedged. Um, that was what we considered security or the fact that you could have, um, you know, two users on a system at home and the operating system really did keep one user from writing over the files of the other. Whereas on the classic Mac OS, that was always a bit of a, <laughs> bit of, <laughs> bit of a handshake deal. <laughs> I won't look at your stuff if you don't look at mine. Yep. Um, but the other – we I don't think we've really gotten an answer on this, but I feel like it, it, it's up in the air. And I know there's a lot of pessimists out there on Apple's commitment to the pro market. But And, and software-wise, I worry. But you look at the hardware they've come out with in the last year or two years, really, starting with the iMac Pro, which is genuinely professional hardware. Now they're selling workstations that can be configured up to $52,000. That, that, that's a serious commitment to – professional computing on the hardware side. But there was this announcement. I forget if it happened at WWDC this year or like in a, in a small footnote afterwards. I know it wasn't in the keynote, but they said something, something to the effect of that the Unix scripting layers may not be uh, long for the world, or at least in terms of being built into the system and that you might have to download them yourself. Uh, that, that's right. That, that, that lines up with my own recollection of them specifically saying, I think it was in the, the Catalina change notes that right. um, the Unix scripting languages were deprecated, which is a word they like to throw around. Yeah. And I, 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 I read maybe a little bit more into that than I should have, but my sense of that is that they simply 
on the one hand, recognized that they were never really very good about keeping those tools up to date. Um, the, the versions that Mac OS shipped with were always out of date and they rarely got updated when there were maintenance patches to the OS. And they were very difficult to um, keep up to date on your own unless you started using something like Homebrew. Which a lot of people started doing. Yeah, well, so I use it. I like it. But I know a lot of people have strong feelings against it. They don't trust it. Uh They've been bitten in the past by it. And there's a certain... However much behind Apple's versions of things like this, we're talking about languages like Perl and Python and and um, and Ruby. Ruby, of course. And you know, Ruby is a great story of that because Perl and Python were already not old, old, but you know, they were in, established established in two thousand two. The whole rise of Ruby happened during the Mac OS ten era, um, mm-hmm. and and really felt. Uh, you know, part of it was that an Apple, you know, got a version of Ruby. And I know there's, you know, every one of these scripting languages, but Ruby, I think sort of maybe, maybe more so than others had some weird issues where, you know, the newest version was not quite fully compatible with the one that Apple had included, but you could, you could get it there, but, but you could count on Ruby being there, even when Ruby was a relatively new language that had taken off. And the fact that it was just there and you didn't really have to, do anything complicated at the at the command line really uh, it's just a feather in in mac os 10's hat i think and agreed yep and and it was also at a time you know again not me and you uh, for sure but an awful lot of our uh, of our friends who were new 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 to the platform in the mid 2000s came because of Ruby. It was Ruby that drove them to come to the, cause that was what they were writing for their work, like Ruby on rails, server side stuff. And what, what do you want on your desk? If that's what you're doing, you wanted a Mac, you wanted Mac OS 10. Yep. Um, the thing that's unclear to me and I've asked around and as far as I can tell, I think that the, it's one of those things with Apple where they won't even say that we don't know. They'll just, they just have a non-answer, but basically I think what do they mean by an external download? And because there's two two ways that can go. The first would be what you were talking about, where you you're all completely on your own. There is a terminal app, and you have access to the you know Unix command line, but you've mm-hmm. got to start from scratch with. And and Homebrew certainly makes it a lot easier than downloading a a tarball and and compiling the whole thing yourself. Um, because you know then it raises the question of how do you get the the developer tools? Now you've got a eight gigabyte Xcode download just to just to get a compiler um the other one though would be if apple makes these tools part of the developer tool package which they've always done right so you install xcode Mm -hmm. and then there's a menu command you can do that will install the uh, the command line version of all the various compilers and you know there's other tools that are in there but you don't have to do the whole uh, make test install command line dance to get them they're officially supported they come from apple in a real package installer and basically all you have to do is authorize you know say okay i'm an admin on this mac go ahead and install them if that's what they do with perl and python and ruby and its various friends i guess i'm okay with that but i would really hate to see it i'd really hate to see those languages drop out as being supported at all by apple 
Yeah, I, I agree. And it's really difficult to predict how that's going to go. I, I have been getting, and, and I don't have a, a basis for this necessarily, but I've, I've sort of been getting the sense that um, there is less... How, how do how do I phrase this? It, it 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 feels like the Mac is becoming less and less of a developer platform for people who aren't actually targeting Apple OSs. Right, that's a good way. That is a very good way to put it. And I I I you know I hesitate to tell them their business and where Mac sales are coming from and what significant, you know, what significance the number of developers who are just doing purely server side stuff in rails or PHP uh, or, you know, all of the other various JavaScript based server side stuff that is, that has become really, really popular in the last few years. Um, but I, I, like I get it that maybe if you tally up all of that market, it isn't that huge compared to the four to five million max Apple sells quarter after quarter at this point where, you know, an awful lot of them are just typical, you know, consumers who want to get a MacBook Air to do email and browse the web and whatever else, you know, a typical quote unquote Mac user would do. But I, I kind of I kind of feel like they might be overlooking just how important that that developer market, even though they're not writing iOS apps or Mac apps or tvOS apps, that being the go-to platform for those developers, I still think was a it was good for the Mac above and beyond multiply the number of those developers times the price of the Macs that they pay for. I, if somehow, it, it, yep, you you you, um, you beat me to it. Right. <laughs> uh, I I I really think that. Um, developers of anything, uh, software developers, web developers, people who are producing uh, things on the technical things on Macs, whether it's PHP and WordPress themes and CSS and HTML or uh, C for, for scientific computing and also Mac iOS watch os and all the rest i i think that that people who do software development are the leading edge enthusiast audience mm -hmm. for any plat for any platform uh they they push the hardware to its limits they push the os to its limits um and i think it's a real mistake to marginalize them even on the valid fiscal basis that they don't sell all that many machines because it's in, in any market, not just computing, it's the enthusiasts who tell other people what to buy. Yeah. And I know um, you can, I bet you know where I'm going is the car market. Uh, huh. Um, and, and I really do think that's true. And I'm not, you're more of much more of a car guy than I am. Our, our friends at the ATP show even had a car show before I did. <laughs> Um, but I think I get it. And I kind of, my obs observations, and I haven't bought a car in 13 years. Um, we're overdue, but, uh, I'm waiting cause I feel like at this point, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like where John Syracuse was waiting for the new Mac pro we're overdue for a new car, but it, it, 
at this point, I really feel like I want to get something electric. I feel like buying another gas car is the wrong wrong move for us. But in the meantime, here I am, and I have to look at my wife and son and explain why we have a 2006 Acura that doesn't even <laughs> doesn't not only doesn't have CarPlay, it doesn't even have like a USB. It's 2006. <laughs> the 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 latest and greatest in 2006 was the iPod with the 30 pin connector, and we don't even have yeah. we don't even have that. <laughs> well, listen, I I'm not going to judge you because. Um, my my daily driver, my grocery getter, is a 2004 with 143,000 miles on it. Um, my my fun car is a 2005 with 127,000 miles on it. And yeah, every once in a while, I think about buying a new car. And for a daily driver, of course, it's it's easier to look around and say, okay, well, this is the price I want, and this is. This is the electric car that does what I want. Because, yeah, I, I agree. Buying a gasoline car for everyday use is seems like a losing bet. Um, but as an enthusiast, I I look at BMW's current offerings and I think, wow, they really don't make a car I want to buy. And that's really I, disappointing. And I've, I've heard that from so many friends who are in that semi-enthusiast market and then and just weird decisions and and the way that that cruft mental cruft can just kind of build up in the design process where there's things that they can they're just adding weight to cars and and putting stuff in the doors and adding this stuff when it's if it's meant for enthusiasts that's it's just not what they want that they're making decisions that are that's this is not what we want, you know, and, and circle back to, you know, the trash can Mac pro and similar type decisions where this, I I get where some people might, this might appeal to them. They might want a fancier electric window that moves in a much more smooth manner, but I don't, I don't want 50 extra pounds in my door. Yep. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And, and I look at Apple's computers and, I, I I have a 2018 MacBook Pro with a touch bar, uh, the last gasp of the old keyboard. Yeah. And and I hope there's an iteration of it that has the new keyboard. I've I've heard that the new keyboard isn't quite as bad as the previous generation, and that's good. Um but I'm I'm looking at enthusiast hardware and seeing nothing. Yeah. Well and it... and, and, and and sorry, go and, and I look at the and I look at the OS and I and I and I and I feel that I have a sense of the direction it's going in, and and I see a lot of the same thing happening. I see, I see the enthusiasts, the ones who say, "Yeah, this is what I got. This is what I like. This is what I would recommend." If you're making recommendations for family, what are you going to support? And and thinking, and and thinking, yeah, I I can't recommend this. It, there's a sense I, I almost wrote it today, uh, but there's a sense that we're we as Mac users are never satisfied. <laughs> but that's our job as Mac enthusiasts to never be satisfied. And right. so, in any domain, enthusiasts are right. never satisfied. Right. And so here, Apple has finally shipped this major new update to the MacBook Mac Pro, and it truly is, a, a, in and of itself, just impressive engineering uh, across mm-hmm. the board. Um. But I can't help but look at both A, just go to store.apple.com and try to configure a nice pro desktop for $4,000. Yeah. 
which seems like something you ought to be able to buy, uh, but which they don't sell because the new Mac Pro starts at $6,000. And in my opinion, again, I don't think it's a problem for the market that machine is meant for, this workstation class market. I, I, I don't even think it's necessary. I don't think it's great, but I don't think it's necessarily a problem that that base config $6,000 Mac Pro isn't that great for anybody that the people who really, really need excessive computing ability are configuring something a lot more expensive than that. And the people who really just want a nice modular desktop, it's the $6,000 is going into things that aren't necessarily the best dollar for dollar. I mean, there's tons of people on Twitter who've configured, you know, uh, Intel-based hardware from the PC market. And, and, you know, you can get something pretty performant for and, and you know are truly in my opinion you know professional you know with with good quality ram and a good ssd and stuff like that for you know less than six thousand dollars much less right i there, there's still a hole in the lineup there and you know I, I is it just as simple as an imac pro without the built-in display and that's that's not the most unre you know it's not unreasonable to want in in terms of the modularity of your professional machine it is it it strikes me as actually very reasonable to want to separate the computer from the display because a display mm-hmm. can certainly last for a lot of people especially now that they've gone retina right now that you know we've gone over this you know we had the great divide from the CRT era to the flat screen era and then with the flat screens we've gone to this, these retina level resolutions, it's not unreasonable to think that, like, if Apple were to sell a regular 5K Pro display without the XDR, that it could last 10 years or more, it, yep. a lot longer than your computer might. And so, I really don't think it's. Again, I realize we're complaining just after Apple <laughs> shipped this major <laughs> new thing, but I look at it and I see the complaints of of my developer friends on Twitter, you know, or or in private, you know, Slack groups and stuff like that. That boy, a lot of them, a lot of them feel uh, well way overserved by the the new Mac Pro, and they sort of feel like they're missing an enthusiast level device, you know, computing device that's somewhere in between a Mac mini and a Mac pro, what we now call the Mac pro. Couldn't agree more. Um, I, I think, uh, it, it's kind of funny through, throughout my entire personal and professional history of buying computers, my mystical, magical sweet spot price point has always been $4,400. Every <laughs> computer, every, every computer I've ever bought once, once equipped from the, 512k mac to the to the quadra 700 to the power mac 9500 and through to the my most recent computer purchase which was desktop purchase which was a 2013 mac pro 4400 dollars <laughs> and, and <laughs> it seems like a reasonable price to me as a very nice professional dis- computer yeah for 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 somebody who uses a computer to make their living, um, there is always a sweet spot price point. Yeah. And for me, it has just worked out to be $4,400. And so two of the, these trash cans, I have two of them. Hmm. I, have, I have the one I bought when it came out, and I have 
a refurb that OWC was selling. It's a four-core machine, and I use it for testing new OS versions. And they're just sitting here quietly on my shelf side by side next to my desk, taking up no floor space, outputting almost no heat. And they're exactly what I want in a computer. I can take the top off and put in new, right. more memory if I need to. Um, I've figured out that I can swap in a new SSD. And those are the things that I've found historically that I always need to upgrade. And so a computer like an iMac Pro with no attached display and a hatch over the memory slots, perfect. Yeah. I was I was looking at the new Mac Mini, which from all accounts is a solid little machine. Uh, and there's no access to the RAM. You've got to take yeah. the machine apart. Yeah, and for what it is, I think that's fine. I just feel like it shouldn't be the only standalone desktop Mac other than the new Mac Pro. I mean, it, not it, for twenty five hundred dollars, it shouldn't be. It's, it's, there's a <laughs> serious gap, and I love. I, and again, I know we're complaining about we're complaining about a Mac Mini that has never been better as a Mac Mini. Agreed. Yep. Right, and that they really did listen to pros and, and who use Mac Minis for their work and put as many ports on a little tiny. Uh, it, it's hard to imagine how they could have gotten more ports into the back of that thing, uh, which is great. That's great. Yep. Uh, but, but we're, we're enthusiasts. It's our job to complain about things that don't matter to 90% of the population. Exactly. And we do a very good job of it. All right, let me take a break here. Thank our friends at Casper. Casper products are cl designed cleverly to mimic human curves, providing supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies. You spend one-third of your life sleeping. You should be comfortable when you're doing it. The experts at Casper work tirelessly to make a quality sleep surface that cradles your natural geometry in all the right places. The original Casper mattress combines multiple, multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with just the right amount of both sink and bounce. They really did design it to be the default. That's the one right in the middle. Uh, they now offer three other mattresses, the Wave, the Essential, and the new one, the Hybrid. The Wave features a patent-pending premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body. That's their premium one. The Essential has a streamlined design at a price that won't keep you up at night. It's a little bit lower in price. Still a great mattress. And then the Hybrid, that's the new one, where it combines the pressure relief of their award-winning foam with durable yet gentle springs. They also offer a wide array of other products. If it's related to sleeping and being comfortable, things like pillows and sheets, Casper has it. And it's all there to ensure a better sleep experience for you. And it's all designed, developed, and assembled right here in the USA. They have affordable prices because they cut out the middlemen and they sell directly to you. Hassle-free returns if you are not completely satisfied. Their mattresses are delivered right to your door and they're small. How could that possibly fit a mattress box? It's really kind of amazing. You open it up, you follow their instructions. Number one, put it in your room first. <laughs> Take the box upstairs, put it in your bedroom open it up it'll suck all the oxygen right out of the air and next thing you know you got a mattress it's really amazing uh so anyway 100 night risk-free sleep on it trial that's over three months buy it sleep on it for three months you don't like it they take it back with no questions asked we're up to three casper mattresses here at uh, daring fireball world headquarters everybody in the family loves them even our guests do that's what we got in our guest room now 
you can save 100 bucks, 100 bucks towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com, C A S P E R.com slash talk show and using that code talk show at checkout. That's casper.com slash talk show and special code talk show. Terms and conditions apply. Not just terms, not just conditions, but terms and conditions apply. Uh, before we move on, I just wanted to mention, I, I'll, I'll, I'll kick myself if I don't. I have this theory on the removal of the scripting languages, the Unix ones, and that if, if I'm right, I'll be, I guess I'll be happy. But my theory is if, if Apple continues to support them, like, again, I wouldn't be surprised if they just get installed with the developer tools, you know, like the, the Swift compiler and the GCC and whatever else they got, the C-Lang stuff. Uh, I guess they don't ship GCC anymore, do they? Um, I, I hope that if they continue to support it, that one of the reasons for getting rid of it in the default install would be that the security team doesn't want individual apps to be able to count on the presence of those scripting languages. Cause I think that's part of why they're deprecating them to warn people that if your app, which is either mostly or ostensibly a Mac app using the, you know, Cocoa APIs and stuff like that, but you've got some subsystem of the app that calls out to the Unix shell scripting languages, um, heads up, you're not going to be able to count on that anymore. Not that it won't be possible to do it, but you can't just assume. And for me personally, this, you know, it, it certainly is in use by a fair number of the apps that I use. There's a fair number of apps that include my Markdown Perl script as the, uh, as a Markdown, you know, translator, you wouldn't be an app that uses that wouldn't be able to use that anymore. It would have to switch to some sort of native Swift or, uh, Objective C markdown parser, which is possible, and and there's plenty of them that are very good. But it, it, I, I suspect that if they do pull, if ten sixteen ships and these scripting languages are not in the default inst installation, there's going to be an awful lot of stuff that's going to break in weird ways from developers who either didn't heed the instructions or just you know old versions of apps that users have just kept using. Yeah, that's a good notion, and. It's a real interesting idea that there's a security component to that to to their thinking on this. That that wouldn't surprise me either. Uh, Unix scripting as uh, an, another form of that automation security hole. Yeah. Uh, all right. BB Edit thirteen. <laughs> a couple of the flagship features seem like they were pulled right out of my. I didn't even know I wanted them. But, every, you know, people who read Daring Fireball know that I'm a regular expression super nerd, uh, possibly some sort of weird savant where it's the one, it's this esoteric uh, level of programming or programming-ish stuff that, for whatever reason, my brain takes to. Uh, there's, so there's a new feature in BBN, which I love, which is called the Pattern Playground. And this, there's actually been, there have been apps, entire apps that this is what they do. Now it's just a feature in BB Edit. Can you tell people what a pattern playground is? Yeah. So a pattern playground is a safe space for beginning users to experiment with grep patterns and 
see how the individual elements of a pattern work, get a sense of what a pattern does while working with actual, their actual text, because of course there's a strongly practical aspect to this, um, but without risking actual data. Since they're looking at a read-only copy, uh, you know they'll they'll try a pattern out. They'll say, "Oh, this matches this, and these are what the sub patterns match, and here's how they break down." So it gives you that level of introspection into a pattern to so that you can really see how it works. Um, and so it's a it's an enormously helpful learning tool for anybody who's just starting out. But at the same time. It's an enormously helpful development tool for anybody who's experienced at writing grep patterns to, uh, to, to create, to iterate, to debug a grep pattern. Because, yeah, as you say, there, there really is an element of programming to writing a grep pattern. There's, there's logic involved in the expression of that logic. Uh, and so, so there's, there's this visual introspection. You can try stuff out, you can test it. And when you're ready, you just hit a button, it goes over to the find window and you're ready to put it into service. Yeah. And it, and it fills in all the things like the sub expressions. So if you want to, you know, sub expression one, sub expression two, you know, here, sub expression one is rich, sub expression two is Siegel. And you're like, oh, but wait, sub expression two with Siegel has the space before his name. I have to adjust this pattern to make sure the space isn't in first name, last name, that sort of thing. Exactly. And at the same time, there's also a spot in the playground for experimenting with replacement patterns. Right. So for any given match, again, yeah, it helps you It helps you learn that on the novice side and on the experience side, it helps you iterate and debug. It's not the best analogy I've ever come up with, but it reminds me a little bit of, of apps like Photoshop, uh, Photoshop in particular, but going back in the day where, where you'd bring up a filter for Photoshop back in the day and you'd twiddle with all the settings and then you had to hit a button and wait for the filter or whatever it was to apply to the image. And then you could see if you liked it. And if you didn't, then you had to command Z, go back to it, try it again. And, you know, at some point, Photoshop switched to when when these windows are open and you change the settings for the Gaussian blur or something like that, they preview live in the window behind the dialogue where you're setting it. Uh, and, you know, apps like Acorn and Pixelmator do that too. But this is sort of like li live preview for grep, where instead of typing a pattern, hoping it's right, doing a change all, and then eyeballing the results and uh, undo, go back to the find dialogue, try it again. You can just sit there and play with it. And then you could see it in the window, you know, right there in the, in the playground window. Okay, this is going to do exactly what I thought it was going to do. Yeah, it, it, it really removes the sense of error from the trial and error process, <laughs> right? right? Because all of a sudden, instead of dealing with that element of frustration of it didn't do what I wanted, um, you're, you're now, uh, you're, you're twisting a knob and, and watching the effects in real time. And so uh, the... Is there still try and trial and error? Well, sure. In a literal sense, you're trying something out. It works like you want it to, or it doesn't. And if you if it doesn't, you adjust. Um, but the loop is so tight now that it feels much more like a a live fine tuning sort of a process than instead of uh, instead of trying and failing. Yeah.
One of my other new features, and I love it, I'm looking at the BB Edit 13 release notes here, and you even call it out that it was, this is the commands command, which I love. <laughs> and it was added in BB Edit 12.5, but as it says here in the release notes, it's too cool not to mention again here. Now this, I have to take a little bit of credit for it. This was an idea that I, I threw over the, the, the support transom years ago. You did. It's and, and and we always used to refer to it internally as Gruber's Universal Runner. <laughs> but the idea of this command, which I just love, and I use it all the time, the commands command, and uh, I believe it's the default keyboard. That's what I use. I don't. I think it was free for me. It's Shift Command U, mm-hmm. and it brings up a window where you can type any command in BB Edit, anything in any of the menus, and whatever you type will start matching. And it'll show you a list of everything. So if you know you want to run the process lines containing, you could start typing the word process. You could start typing the words containing. You could start typing lines. It'll match them. If you have a whole bunch of scripts, you know, your own Apple scripts or text filters, which, of course, I have a lot of, all of those are included. And then you could just arrow key down to the one you want. If it's not the top selection, hit return. And then that menu key runs. And I love it. Because I long ago, I'm too old. I've run out of space for new new shortcut keys. I don't. I, <laughs> so I don't. I don't need to. If you have you know a script that you're running, or I just got done selling T-shirts at Daring Fireball, and the, the weird process I use to run them. Uh, I I run a couple of. It's not even worth putting a script together to do it because it's about a two or three step process to export the final count of you know each sku you know all right we got you know 37 of this shirt and 47 xls and blah 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 um but instead of running like two or three commands with their own shortcuts it's all shift command u type the name hit return there it is i love it and i wish i i I don't mean you know maybe you'll take it the wrong way but i wish that it became like a standard feature system-wide (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, we we were inspired, and I, I suspect you were as well, by the awesome work of of really indispensable tools like LaunchBar. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and and one of the things that I did early on um, during the development of this feature was was to think, well, gee, the the thing that BB Edit can do that LaunchBar can't is show you everything inside of BB Edit. Right. You know, as you said, scripts, filters, recently opened files, um, not just menu commands. Of course, the OS will show you menu commands in the help menu, um, but that's not really complete. And one of the things that I wanted to do, and I and I wrote to LaunchBar's developer about this, was to say, okay, well, could I somehow expose this knowledge to LaunchBar? Mm. And he said, that's a really good idea. Unfortunately, it can't support that right now, but I'll think about it. So he, you know, he may be, he may be looking into a model or an API for doing that, which I think would be just awesome. Cause like I said, launch bar is a terrific product. Yeah. Um, but it, it became clear too, that even as popular as launch bar is not everybody who has BB Edit has LaunchBar. Right. Uh, not everybody who has BB Edit knows about LaunchBar, um, and and this need is still here. So I said, okay, well, I'm I'm going to go ahead and build this in. It's it's time for Gruber's wish to become reality. <laughs> and and because it happened mid cycle, and and this is this is something that we've been doing uh, 
for a long time. And I think in some ways it's awesome. In, in most ways it's awesome. And in some ways it's really difficult that we will do significant feature editions in between point O's. Right. And it's awesome because, you know, you get new features for free without having to buy an upgrade. And on the other hand, what we've found is uh, that sometimes it's necessary to call out with a point O features that we added in a previous point five, because we've noticed that a lot of folks really only look closely at a point O. Right. Right. That's where you can uh, really catch their eye with the new feature. Yeah. Or as it turns out, an old one. Yeah. Well, <laughs> speaking of upgrades, it, it is, and without turning this into an app store bitch fest, um, but it, the BB Edit saga in the App Store uh, has been interesting, to say the least, where it was in. Yeah, that's an adjective. All right. We'll go with it. Then you left. Then there you know, were some policy changes that allowed serious you know, tools like BB Edit to come back. Um, and that's just talking, it, can you have an app with the power of BB Edit and have it be in the App Store with the sandboxing rules and to get exceptions, blah, blah, blah. That, you know, is a, a, a long, dirty path. We don't have to <laughs> we don't have to go too far down there. <laughs> but at a high level, at a very high, obvious level, at this point, you know, in the App Store's life, uh, it's very clear that Apple is not going to do, well, I shouldn't say, never say never, but it's clear that upgrade pricing isn't something they want to do. And that, that applies on iOS as well as macOS. Um, for whatever their reasons, but you bare bones is a company that largely was built on the old model of, if you're a new customer, you'll pay X, maybe at the, you know, it was $129 or whatever the price was at the time. But then when new major versions come out, you can upgrade for a significant discount compared to the regular price for a new customer. And that once you're in, you could upgrade, you could buy BB at five back in the day and then upgrade to six and to seven and to eight. And you're only paying at an incremental step along the way. And you get all these new features. Um, that app store doesn't support that. And I think it's pretty clear that in large, in large parts, like just look at Adobe who used to follow that method with their apps have gone to subscription pricing. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on, where that's going well <clears throat> that's a that's a fairly deep and tricky one because there's there's definitely a large segment of the audience that prefers the classical upgrade model where you know what you're um, paying for you're paying for bb edit 13 and as long as bb edit 13 can run on your hardware you, you you've got the right to use it Exactly. And we, we are fully in favor of that. We support it. We built our business on it. We believe in it ourselves. I always prefer software with uh, a paid upgrade model. I support developers with paid upgrades. Um, and, and that is an option which, for as long as I'm in charge, we will always provide. Um, and the subscription model is how the app store provides for ongoing revenue for an application. 
And their subscription model was, and frankly is, oriented around a model of subscription to content. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a bit of cognitive dissonance. They they clearly heard it before, but there was still a little bit of cl- cognitive dissonance where I said, okay, well, but that's not what we want to do. I mean, we don't have content. We have features. And so what we want to do is translate our free mode model, which we've had since BB at 11.6, where you get to use everything for the first 30 days. And after that, there are advanced features which are only available if you have a paid license. Well, how do you do that in the App Store and support ongoing revenue? And the short answer is you have to do it with subscriptions. There is no alternative. Right. So um, so that's how it works in the App Store is the same way. 30 days. After that, it's free without the advanced features. Or if you have an active subscription, you get all the advanced features. And so, so, this, this, so the conventional upgrade model um, goes away in the App Store. As you said, it's not supported. We don't have any way to know who our customers are or, develop, or determine their eligibility. And so what we do is from now on, if you have a live subscription in the App Store, whenever we do BB Edit 14, you'll get it. And as long as you have a live subscription, you'll get all of its advanced features. That's how it worked with the 13 upgrade. Right. Um, BB Edit 12.6 was the first version to come back to the App Store earlier this year. So it 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 sounds to me like your approach to the App Store is uh, fundamentally, and this is you know this is your personality, but it's fundamentally practical. And you know. If you had your druthers, I would assume like a lot of other independent developers, you would rather be able to sell upgrade pricing in the app store. Absolutely. But there's, you know, it, as Steve Jobs liked to say, and as my dad loves to say, people in hell want ice water. Uh, <laughs> yep. I use I use that one myself. Uh, my dad loves that <laughs> saying, and it does. It makes an awful lot of sense. There's really no use complain, <laughs> complaining about it. It is what it is. Um. I just to, to before we move on to maybe just idle chit chat, but mm-hmm. I, I, I still see it. There, there's a fundamental disconnect in my mind between Apple's clear commitment to pro hardware and this ridiculous supercomputer Mac Pro, and the sort of and Apple hasn't said this. Apple has not really even hinted that hey, the App Store is going to be the only way to distribute Mac software. Um, But there's certainly a lot of people who suspect that's what they'd like to do. And again, whether it's, and I think you made a good point earlier where, where there's certainly some cynical people who, and then rightly so maybe who might see it as, well, they just, you know, they want their 30% cut of everything. Uh, And Apple, I'm you know, they, they enjoy their 30%, 15% cut of, of recurring software revenue. I'm sure, you know, they, they cash every single check. Uh, But I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of that's driven as much or more by the security people 
looking at it not as a business decision, but simply a very, very conservative take to what you're allowed to do at your own machine. And my idea, and maybe this is a terrible idea, maybe it really is, but my idea has been that I wish that there was a developer switch in macOS 10 and that you could set it. So we've long had admin accounts and regular user accounts where a regular user account has significantly restricted permissions. This has been the case possibly even before Mac OS X. This might go back to the next era. But, you know, if if you set up, if you have a shared family iMac and you create a regular user account for your children or something like that, they don't have the right to solve, to install software. They need it, you know, they'll get prompted for an admin password and username to go ahead and do stuff. We've always had this. I wish that there was a third, this is my vay. I, I haven't planned it out. There's no, I have no white paper, <laughs> but I kind of wish there was a third account type called developer. And it's, it would be a way of, of confirming to the system that you'd like an awful lot of these restrictions to go back the way they are. And I trust myself to, for lack of a better word, to shoot myself in the foot. I mean, I, you know, another way of putting it is that for it, in the real world, power tools it, to be useful, you need to be able, they need to be built in a way that you, you might hurt yourself with them. You know, a, a knife, a sharp yep. knife is a good tool, but a sharp knife you could cut yourself with. And if you don't, take due care, you can do a lot of damage, including to yourself. And um, I, 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 th I think I see where you're going with this. And my sense of, of it is that, um, as, as you say, the, the security aspect of it is a very, I think it's a very big component. Apple cares a great deal about security. They, they don't keep tightening screws because they don't think it's important. They think it is important. And I, I can see the trend line continuing to a place where even if you're a developer, you can't run anything on your Mac that didn't come from the App Store or Apple. Yeah. And, and so uh, I don't know what that's going to do to the ecosystem. There's going to be some, some real trouble there. Uh, but I also think that your notion of a developer user account is one solution to that. My, I'm, I, one thing I'd be intrigued by is I wonder what percentage of Macs in use are primarily used from the, an admin account. Because every Mac has to have an admin account. Yep. Um, and so how many people, when they get, let's just go with the most popular Mac of all, the MacBook Air. How many people get their new MacBook Air, go through the turn it on, go through the first run, set it up, create your account, type your name and let them pick your, uh, you know, your home directory name or maybe adjust that if you want to. Um, and then never set up another account. I, I can only ass I, I would assume that is the overwhelming majority of Macs in use. That the over I would agree. The most of them run as the admin user and therefore are running under a user whose permissions are traditionally speaking rather dangerous. You know, that you can you can launch an app that could just start 
overwriting files in your documents folder or something like that. There's all sorts of things that, you know, that for year, you know, 20 years, an app that you simply double clicked in your applications folder could do, you know, all sorts of quote unquote dangerous things. Yeah. Um, my thinking is that a developer account wouldn't, it wouldn't be subject in my, I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think that you're suddenly going to find uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of Mac users turning their, toggling the button in the users and accounts systems preferences to become developer accounts just because they want to do X, Y, and Z. I don't think most of those users really run into many problems with macOS Catalina. I really think you have to be either a developer or a developer type user. A, a so-called power user. Yeah. Um, but here's a, here, here's a thought to go with your, your, your own idea here. And that, and that is what if in order to turn on a developer user account, you also had to have a developer account with Apple. And then all of a sudden you lose a bunch of power users who have no reason to sign up for a developer account. Or is that, is that you what you're thinking? It. Yeah. Like somebody who's just, you know, or, you know, just to go with the podcast, you know, like, uh, like David Sparks at the Mac power users, con, you know, podcast or people who who's, who, who's just sail through like Adobe illustrator and Photoshop and know everything inside and out, but really, mm-hmm. you know, have that long standing, uh, you know, and they know all sorts of things like, you know, they know about installing Safari extensions and the, the ways that you can, you know, the powerful things that you can do with extensions and stuff like that in, in all the apps that they use. Does it really make sense to require them to have a developer account to unlock those abilities? I don't know, but I, I kind of feel like once you say, even if this if this idea got any traction within Apple, I don't think it would take very long for them to say, well, the first thing you have to do is have an Apple developer connection account. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's like if you have a developer account, maybe you don't ever see uh, BB Edit wants to communicate with Xcode, cancel or allow. <laughs> uh, Right. I, and I don't want to turn this into a Catalina bitch fest. I'm I'm running I've been running this <laughs> this 16-inch MacBook Pro for weeks now and it has to run Catalina because it's new hardware. I have to mm-hmm. say Catalina has been much better than I was led to believe you know going into this. It's 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 been pretty good. Uh, not buggy, uh, better than I think its reputation seems to be. But when I've run into weird things, boy are they frustrating. Like yep. there was one I tweeted just like last week where I was writing in Mars edit mid sentence. I'm kind of in the flow and all of a sudden a system wide modal dialogue popped up and stole keyboard focus to ask about the, some app in the background, I forget what it was, wanted permission to read my documents folder. It, it was an app I hadn't, hadn't been actively using in hours. It just was sitting idly in the background and for some reason something prompted to do it. And I, I, I cannot remember, honestly, I, I mean, it might be decades or more that I can remember a system-wide modal dialogue popping up mid-sentence while I'm typing and stealing keyboard focus. It just seems... And all, right, and all of a sudden there's a bunch of beeps and you lost a bunch of words and it, and you lost your train of thought. And and it just looks like a cheap dialogue. It just There's something cheap uh-huh. to the way that it looked where it just... It, not that I thought it was a scam. I knew exactly what it was. I knew, you know, that these this is this new, you know, that they 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 used to they keep tightening some of these screws. Like now, the documents folder is is protected. You know, first they first they came for mail and contacts, and 
<laughs> and I didn't say anything right. because I'm not writing an email client right. anymore. <laughs> All right, let me take a third break here and thank our third and final sponsor of the show, our good friends at Squarespace. Squarespace. Hey, make your next move at Squarespace. They're gearing up now. This is a big deal for Squarespace, coinciding with the new year, which is coming up. Look, everybody knows it. There's no reason to pretend otherwise. You know what people do at New Year's? They set resolutions. They set new goals. Maybe they start new businesses, change careers, launch a creative project. People do that around New Year's. It's just a, a contemplative time of the year. Well, Squarespace gives you a powerful and beautiful online platform from which to make your next move known to the world. If the next thing you want to do involves building a new website or replacing an old website, you can do it at Squarespace. You can lock down your next move idea with a unique domain name registered at Squarespace, create the website, starting with some of their beautiful, award-winning, professionally designed templates. You could use it to build a portfolio to get your project out there, your show your work if you're looking for a new job. You could build an online store at Squarespace to officially open for business and do your actual commerce right there at Squarespace. And they handle all the ugly technical details of online commerce, all the security stuff, all the regulations and stuff around saving credit card numbers. You don't have to worry about any of that. You just open the store. They do all the credit card processing and you get your money for the products that you're selling. Make your next move with a beautiful new website from Squarespace. Your next move could have a new unique domain name from Squarespace everything you need to do, including award-winning technical support, which I'm about to talk to Rich about. Uh, make your next move. Get your unique, unique new website from Squarespace. And if you start building today at squarespace.com, you get a free trial, 30 days. And when you check out, use that code TALKSHOW. No the, just TALKSHOW. And you get 10% off. You could prepay for a year, 10% off. That's a, that's a lot of money. That's over a month free just by using that code TALKSHOW. So go to squarespace.com slash talk show. And I thank them. I thank Squarespace for another year of continuing sponsorship of this podcast. Uh, so I, I really did mean that in the middle of that read. Or Squarespace has great tech support, but uh, so does Bare Bones. It's always been a huge source of pride for you. It's true for a lot of the independent developers I know. And I do think that... Uh, there's also some correlation to the developers who have longevity and have kept apps going for a long time that they also deeply concern themselves with customer support. Uh, tell me, you know, tell me about your approach to customer support at bare bones and where that started from. Well, where it started from was my very first professional job, which was at think technologies, the folks who did lightspeed C and lightspeed Pascal um, as a customer, I got to talk with a human being who knew something about the product, <laughs> how it worked, how to help me use it, how to fix problems when it wasn't working correctly. And this person hired me as his replacement. <laughs> One day he called me up. I, we, we were talking and, 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 and then, and he mentioned, he said, by the way, I'm leaving, but I have to hire my replacement. Would you be interested? <laughs> and I said, uh, sure. And I had to think about it because I was living in Virginia at the time and I was just out of college. And 
this was up in in Boston and 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 it was a big deal. So I to make a long story short, I ended up take, ended up taking that job and firsthand had this experience of being on the receiving end of a phone call from a programmer trying to use the product and having trouble. And I very quickly realized that even though that was a perfectly conventional way to do tech support at the time, it was hugely important that we were responsive to what the customer needed, that when the customer thought they had a problem, you, you listen to them describe what's going on and you, and you frame that against your own experience and you say, oh, okay, well, here's what's happening. Um, you're holding it wrong. Maybe not in so many words. Right. Um, or that's a really neat idea. Let me see. Let me make sure the engineers hear about that. Um, no, this is definitely not working correctly. We'll get a bug fix for that. And it really drove into me at a, at a very impressionable age how important customers are to the product. Um, you know, not just in the conventional ways of, yes, they buy a license and your, and your, your company gets to keep the lights on, um, but as part of a cycle that makes the product better. It's, it's a weird form of art developing uh, applications over the time, over time. And, and I, mm -hmm. I do feel, I, f I feel like that framing that Steve Jobs had in the last few events that, that he held as CEO of Apple, that Apple exists at this intersection of the liberal arts and, and technology. Uh, it's true at Apple's enormous uh, scope, and it's true at the scope of a true small independent developer where there's obviously technology involved. We were just talking about grep playgrounds, obviously mm -hmm. very technical, but there's this liberal arts process to the ongoing development of a program and how you keep it relevant. And I, I do think that the closeness of, of bare bones uh, relationship to its customers from the get go, I mean, literally since before it was a commercial product, um, you know, I, I remember the release notes to the earlier version, like BB Edit 2.2, and they were largely, you know, I guess I read about them on Tidbits probably, uh, or probably using probably. it, probably CompSys Mac Announce, actually, uh, to really go, to really bring it back to the old days. Um, but they were based on, uh, you know, oh, we heard from we heard from some of you who were using BB Edit. Okay, here's here's some answers to your problems. Enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, and... and and that really informed the way we do it today. And, and yes, the mechanics might be a little bit different. And uh, it's true, we don't do telephone tech support anymore. Right. Uh, we just can't. But if you write in to support at barebones.com and you have a question or a problem or a request um, or even just want to tell us how much you love it, <laughs> um, your email is read by a human being who appreciates it, even if it's a complaint, and still forms part of that hugely important cycle that that um, helps us make the product better. Yeah. To me, the flip side of customer support, because I think it's two parts of the same coin, is good documentation and 
to me, both of these things have largely been lost. You can get tech support from Apple. I don't want to say you can't get tech support. You call 1-800-APPLE and you can go to Apple stores and get tech support. But it's mostly you, you, you can't get tech support from Apple in the way that you get tech support from Barebones or from the Omni Group or from mm-hmm. Flying Meat. Um, and you you don't get technical documentation like you do. I mean, BB Edit is 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 fully documented the manual and again it's near and dear to my heart there's parts of the manual that i've you know still there with my words in them from when i was yep. working on it um but it again it's it's the recurring theme in the apps that that i've been using for a decade or longer or two decades in some cases uh and and a there's a very strong correlation between the comp, you know the independent developers who are committed to u- customer support and who are committed to really good documentation and not mm. and not mm-hmm. just uh letting that go and i yeah and that well and that was another thing i learned from the think days it's like manuals are important yeah uh the uh, documentation is important release notes are important the guy who hired me uh, into his job at tech support actually eventually came back to the company <laughs> and uh, wrote documentation for Lightspeed C and Lightspeed Pascal. Uh, he actually wrote documentation for us as well. And uh, yeah, <laughs> you, you, I, I cannot overstate the importance of that. Um, our change notes... <laughs> are perhaps the best expression of that when um i'm trying to figure out how to frame this because there's so much history there um but whenever a change got committed it's very important to write up the nature of the change in the way the customer can understand it because that change is going to go directly into the change notes. <laughs> well, and there it is as a first class item right there in the help menu, change notes. And yep. you can... that was new for 13, actually. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't do it before. <laughs> but they are, they're both the, uh, they're both, the, I don't know if BB Edit's documentation is the gold. It's certainly excellent. And I, again, you can even take out the chapters that are, that are still there that I've worked on. So take out any self-serving uh, <laughs> aspect of my praise for the BB Edit user manual it still is and it's still good <laughs> it's very good uh but the change notes in addition to their comprehension they're uh they're always worth reading there's here's here's one it's very recent i this might even be the beta it's 13.04 <laughs> i just have to read this i love it this is but this is why it's worth pouring over the bb edit change notes it's bug 380460 for performance reasons bb edit will skip to drawing the invisibles upside down question mark glyph for characters in the BMP quote private use area, and then you got the Unicode numbers there. There's there's these uni, you know a series of Unicode byte sequences that are private use area in the Unicode standard, and now BBS just going to draw them as invisibles for performance reasons. But then it says the Apple symbol, <laughs> and it gives its exact byte code is now excluded from that test because it is sacred. Right, because that's what happened. What happened was in the old days, you, it was Option G, right, is how you type an Apple logo, right? Um, Am I, I misremembering? 
Nope, that's that's Option Shift K. Option Shift K. Option G is the copyright symbol. I knew that was one of them. Yeah, Option Shift K. You've been able to use Option Shift K to type an Apple logo as far back as you've uh, probably all the way back to the get go. But in the old days, that was just uh, you know there were only two hundred and fifty five characters, and they just reserved one of them for this. Then they eventually did the right thing and moved it into the private use area of Unicode. And BBEdit is not going to exclude it from the list because it is sacred. That's the sort of detail that's worth reading in release notes. Yeah, and it, it funny funny you mentioned that too because I I just pulled up a document I hear some some years ago. Um, one of my earliest Twitter friends, Patrick Burleson, um, who I think works at Apple now, um, asked me about change notes. He's like, "How do you do it?" <laughs> and I said, you know, I've never really put it all down in one place. So I have a markdown document here, which I wrote because he asked me that question and I've never done anything with it. And, and I, I have mixed feelings about whether I should, I probably should, I won't be giving away any secrets. You can tell how we do change notes. <laughs> um, but, uh, Towards the end, um, there's a note here that says it is hugely important that when, as an engineer, you're writing commit notes, you must write them for the customer to read. Hmm. That means that you should know your audience and take care with your spelling, grammar, and writing style. Um, and, and, and it goes on. There's, there's a few more paragraphs, and I'm not going to bore you with them. But that's really the point here is that these change notes a lot a lot of uh folks write commit notes for other engineers to read right and it's not that that's unimportant but engineers with access to the source code can figure out what you did by looking at the changes in the source code the user facing rationale for the change which is every bit as important is something that you have to be able to communicate clearly to the customer when they read it. Um, so trying to be cute or twee about your change notes doesn't benefit the customer. It's like they want to know what you did. And by setting it down clearly at the time you make the change, which is in the commit notes, uh, there is no better time to do that. And so that's how we do it. When when there's a code change, you write it up. It's written. It's written in English. Yeah. Uh, well, I can think of no better note to end on. Uh, Rich, I thank you for your time. Everybody can, of course, find out more about BBEdit at barebones.com. And then, Rich, you personally are at Siegel S I E G E L. You and I are fellow surname only preferred username <laughs> people. Uh, your excellent Twitter follow. Uh, anything else that you want to mention before we before we sign off? Oh goodness, there's so much. <laughs> Go get BB Edit. <laughs> All it's well, a great product. I'm I'm very proud of it. <laughs> I'm very happy about the new version. Um, we have that 30 day full evaluation period, and then the free mode afterwards. So you know. You can pay for it and get all the features. You cannot pay for it and still has an awesome editor. And you're happy to have them as, as users until they need. I'm happy to have you as a user, whether you pay me money or not. 
That I love. Better that. if you do. <laughs> Better if you do. But but you don't have to. And and also, yeah, John, I want to thank you in particular for having me as a guest. I hope this isn't the last time. No. But I also want to thank all your listeners for for listening. Yeah. Thank you, Rich.